I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. So what I'm doing is I'm watching you and I'm, are you watching me? Are we just watching each other? I mean, ideally just gazing into each other's eyes. Yeah, I'm absolutely watching you. Actually, I'm kind of watching me. Ah. Because look how cute I look. I mean, you look great. All right. Well, I think that worked. So here we go. Which please gone rogue. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a podcast about the Harry <laughs> Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. This week, oh, this month, this, <laughs> mm, this installment of season three, Witch Please Gone Rogue brings you an episode very much in the shape of our many of our season two episodes um, where we are going to bring in some audio from a live event recorded elsewhere. Uh, that live event in this case is a keynote that Marcel gave uh, and I wasn't even there so I don't even know what she said and so <laughs> I'm really excited to listen to it because I think that Marcel is really smart and interesting. Oh. I'm I'm going to tell you and our dear listeners the same thing that I told the audience uh, at this talk, which is that um, I'm really just using Harry Potter as a secret way in to just tell you about my research. <laughs> so it's like, it's like I talk about Hermione for about six seconds and then I'm like, ha ha, Canadian pulp magazine history, suckers. <laughs> I love that. Psych. <laughs> Oh, oh! I can't wait because you know what I also love? What? Canadian pulp magazine history. It's pretty cool. I love it a lot. I'm very interested in it. 
in a lot of ways, I feel like Witch Plays as a project was a Trojan horse from the beginning Mm -hmm. where we took a horse made out of Harry Potter books Mm -hmm. and we stuffed it full of secret feminism. (laughs) Just a thousand handmaidens of feminism Mm -hmm. crouched inside a horse made out of books. Is this metaphor working? It's working great. And then I'm imagining it like trotting through Harry Potter fandom land, just pooping out feminism everywhere it goes. <laughs> I don't think the Trojan horse is animate. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's how the soldiers got out. Otherwise, they would know it's not a real horse. Duh. Oh, I should know better than to put on an eye makeup before recording one of these episodes. <laughs> I'm a fool. I never learn. Okay. <sighs> So will you tell us, will you tell us a little bit more about what the actual event was that you gave the keynote at? Yeah. um, So sorry, sorry, sorry. At which you gave the keynote. Mm, Thank you for correcting that. I was going to have to fix it in post. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a hot Mm. tip for all of you young podcasters. It's not worth your time to splice up your sentences to fix your own grammar. Oh. I have, on the very rare occasion, made the effort when I have misspoken, made the effort to say to find the correct word elsewhere in the mm. podcast and mm-hmm. splice it in, mm-hmm. and it always sounds bad. Yep. Yeah, I know. I've totally been there, and especially in our first season. <laughs> uh. Which which we are which we are retroactively dubbing which please keeping it on the rails. Which please, so legit. Which, which please, we were so much younger then. Which please, I hadn't even done my candidacy yet. <laughs> Actually, wait, that's not true. Yes, I did. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, want, I, I want. I want to reassure where, you. I don't know where I get off saying. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, mm, so are you sure, Michael? Mm, yes. <laughs> may I, for a moment, gaslight you about your own life? Okay, tell me about your goddamn keynote. To answer your question, um, I was invited to give the closing keynote for uh, the annual ABQLA conference. And the mm. ABQLA is uh, L'Association des Bibliothécaires du Québec, Quebec Library Association. So Is this a... keynote in French? Yep, surprise. <gasps> I'm just kidding. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did when they first invited me have uh, a small fantasy about giving at least a portion of the keynote in French, mm-hmm. but um, I couldn't have answered any questions yeah. in French. And so it seemed really disingenuous to, uh, you know, present myself as bilingual when I'm semi one and a half lingual <laughs> semi-lingual i'm semi-lingual that's why i like i speak two languages half yeah. so i think that means that i speak a total of two languages i speak one entirely and two a bit yeah yeah, yeah. that's great that's two languages it's fine it's fine they invited you to speak about harry potter and you were like nice try suckers i mean actually technically they invited both of us But you were doing something very fancy in Vegas? Not in Vegas. I think that was just... Oh, it was regionals. 
which my chorus came in first Ooh. in, and Ooh. my quartet came in last in. Still on the map. <laughs> um, yes. No, I was here. I was here for the Sweet Adeline's Women's Barbershop Regional Competition. Very cool. Can't do keynotes. Have to wear the same dress as three other women. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was great for me because uh, it meant that I got to sneak in a talk about my own research. Yes. It was great. Yeah. So uh, do you think that people know in general what your research area is? Uh, people? I, I mean, I don't even know what my own research is. So Liar. So I, uh, so my, my dissertation research is about early Canadian women's uh, science fiction and fantasy writing. And mm -hmm. um, so that includes a period known as Canada's golden age of pulp <laughs> magazine production. Mm -hmm. um, and so the talk that I gave was largely drawn from the second chapter of my dissertation, where I talk about the pulp magazine history in Canada and, uh, uh, why it's sort of complicated. Hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you interrogate at all or have you, or has anyone this notion of a golden age? <laughs> I think that, um, scholars, I think scholars who write about the period critically, uh, by which I mean, not just doing like a fluff piece for, uh, a magazine. <laughs> PR, PR for, <laughs> A hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah. um, they, I think it's really hard to talk about it as a golden age without being a little bit tongue in cheek because yeah. it was less than a decade long. It was, it was like closer to five years and um, the government reacted so swiftly and thoroughly in an attempt to crush it that um, it, golden age is very generous. Also, yeah. it was like... I, I can't remember the the turn of phrase that I use in my dissertation, and I'm actually not sure if I use this uh, in the talk or not, um, but it's something like a bunch of opportunistic ex-newspaper, or sorry, opportunistic newspaper expats who hmm. came out of the woodwork to start this pulp industry. Um, it was really like people in their kitchens. I mean, I don't know if it was literally their kitchens, but like, like... Like back alley operations to print, yeah, you know, seventy five copies of a really shitty tabloid magazine yeah. that is largely plagiarized from an American periodical that they smuggled over the border. Yes, the rich golden age of Canadian <laughs> periodical publishing. It has literally never been better than that. So, Truly. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, people who make Canadian magazines. There are many. Excellent small Canadian magazines in Canada. It's true, but those are yeah. either little magazines or slick magazines. The pulp mm -hmm. magazine era was like deliberately trashy. And, you know, yeah. I think if we're talking about trashy magazines, I think it is fair to say that Canada truly had a golden age of making <laughs> trashy magazines. <laughs> What's the trashiest thing Canada makes now? Um, what a good question. Uh, have you ever been to St. Catherine Street in Montreal? No. Okay. Uh, I mean, probably. 
it is a street that is very bougie, but then the further east you go, it is just all sex shops and strip clubs and uh, really gross bars. So I would say that that, that, that area is probably mm-hmm. the... Oh, wait. No, no, no. Never mind. I take it back. It's definitely Crescent Street where all the American tourists go uh, when they turn 18 to get really, really drunk. Just that street is the trashiest yeah. thing Canada makes. Yeah. Great. Actually, no, I take it back. <laughs> White Avenue. I just remembered where I live. White Avenue in Edmonton, which is covered in vomit like four it's out of seven days a week. covered in vomit. It's wild. Yeah. So I would say the oh. bar culture is, <laughs> yeah, is the yeah, trashiest yeah, yeah. Bar thing culture, that Canada makes sure. right now. <laughs> I really thought that you were going somewhere like vis-a-vis print culture. You're like, oh, so on St. Catharines, no. there are like these local, like tabloid newspaper. Nope. <laughs> it's just the no, street. No, it's just the street. Just the place. Just yep. bar culture in general. I don't know. Oh. What do you think? What do you think is the trashiest thing that Canada makes right now? Oh my God. I mean, there's a lot of particular human beings I would like to point at, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I'm not going to because I've already gotten in trouble for naming them on podcasts. So instead, you know who they are. And so instead, I'm going to say, so I right now, uh, when I was in Regina in May for the Congress, the big humanities and social sciences conference in Canada, Mm -hmm. I met up with a bunch of the women running a protest camp on the legislature grounds and it's called camp justice for our stolen children and there's a number of women there um including satin denny colton bushy's sister Mm -hmm. um and they are protesting the lack of legal response to the high rate of murders of indigenous people particularly in saskatchewan Mm -hmm. um And they are doing really amazing work. So they've set up teepees and they have a sacred fire going and it's a safe space where other indigenous people can come and talk to them and get support. And then also it's a protest camp. So they're trying to get like movement from the, uh, the legislature and, uh, I'm Facebook friends now with one of the women who I interviewed for that episode. And she posts on Facebook a lot of the racist responses that they get that they are getting for their nonviolent protest camp including a number of uh white folks in saskatchewan proposing um that they should implement a shoot an indian day Mm, i've seen that yeah so that's i think the trashiest thing canada's producing i think that that is the clear winner <laughs> no competition on that one i mean but, but but a street full of vomit is also in its own way an extension of like like white supremacy patriarchy and capitalism oh, sure like, yeah white ave is white ave is not unsaturated with its own violences yes <laughs> yes i will i will i will grant you that um whew. Oh, man. Yeah. Bringing it down. <laughs> so that's my theme song. It's good. It's a Thanks. it's a good it's a good theme song. Thanks. It's very, very 2018. Thank you. It's a, the theme of 2018 is me wearing a unicorn top and bright blue eyeshadow while talking about the violences of white supremacy. <laughs> I think that's the most 2018 thing I could be doing. 
Yeah. Yeah. 2018 yeah. is weird, right? Yeah. It's really weird. It's just like, what's her name? Lisa Frank? Mm-hmm. It's like Lisa Frank and fascism mm-hmm. together at last. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. So, trash. Trash. Canada, Canada has produced a lot of trash. Mm-hmm. Why do you explain in your talk why you are interested in the trash that Canada has historically produced? Um, that's a good question. I don't, I don't think I answer that per se, um, but I talk about how – I talk a little bit. Um, but I'll talk more now about the <laughs> fact that um, when I started this project, the history of Canadian women science fiction writing, um, I was really excited about uncovering all of these forgotten feminist texts. And uh, I was really excited to see how that feminism had developed over time. And I was really I was really excited to celebrate that history. Um, And uh, right from the very beginning, and this actually probably won't come as a surprise to anyone who is familiar with the history of white feminism, um, but these early feminist texts are extremely racist and classist because at that point in history, um, the dominant feminist discourse was racist white imperial women who wanted to make Canada a white empire or who wanted to um, make Canada a white nation. Mm-hmm. And whiteness was a very exclusive concept that only applied to certain people with certain characteristics and certain behaviors. Um and it was pretty remarkable to me. I was very naive when I started this project and I've learned, I mean, weren't we all before? Well, no, we weren't all. Some people knew what was up. Yeah. Uh, I was not one of them. Anyway, I was very naive when I started this project, but uh, I have since come to learn that even even the exciting world of science fiction, which has so many opportunities for imagining things differently and resisting commonplaces and um, opening your mind to uh, new and better worlds, was used and deployed as a method of white supremacy in its, mm-hmm. uh, in, I mean, even now, but also definitely. Yes. Definitely at the turn of the century, before science fiction was even a genre. Do you remember the Sad Puppies protest of a couple of years ago? Uh, that ring a bell. sounds familiar, but I, I don't. Help it was me when, out. so the, the big um, sci-fi literary award, the Nebula, is mm-hmm. that what it is? Mm-hmm. Is unlike most other major literary awards, it's done by vote rather than by like an expert jury. Okay. And so I guess a bunch of white dudes who were used to sort of dominating SF as a genre were outraged by like a women of color who had started winning these awards and were insistent that it was <sighs> just political correctness um, ruining their genre. And so they tried to organize like a collective, like they basically tried to game the voting system by like organizing online to get a whole bunch of people to swamp the votes. So that like typical, particularly military science fiction Mm 
mm-hmm. like which is a very popular genre with a particular kind of reader like they tried to push all of that into the into the winning positions mm-hmm. um to beat out the like black women who are like <laughs> owning these awards recently and uh anyway it didn't work and mm-hmm. nk jemison won again Amazing. because she is better than all of them combined <laughs> <laughs> but like that history like it's so rooted in in SF as a genre, right? Like mm-hmm. the way that particularly as like not in not futurism or speculation as genres, like mm-hmm. those those are more amorphous and have other kinds of possibilities, but like mm-hmm. pu- the publishing history of of SF is so rooted in white supremacy. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um when so Hugo Gernsback is sort of known as the like father of science fiction as a genre because of his because of his magazine mm-hmm. um i think it was amazing stories somebody listening is the right hugo now. named after him yes okay yeah, it absolutely is um and he it was really important to him that okay sorry how do i want to describe this because okay so before the internet and social media and all of those things um People communicated and ideas circulated in letters to the editor columns, right? And so science Mm -hmm. fiction and fantasy as genres really were developed by the communities of people who are reading and writing. There was like, Mm -hmm. that's why, that's why fandom is so important in those, in those genres and particularly and less so in like (laughs) realism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Literary fiction doesn't care as much about its fandoms. No. And so, so people were actually, when these things were brand new in the, in the 20s, people were actually con- contributing to conversations about, you know, well, what, what should we publish in these magazines? What kinds of stories are we looking for? And that mm-hmm. was really how the genre became born. And for Gernsback... Really thought you said that's how the genre became boring. <laughs> no, I mean, well, no. Uh, yeah. But for Gernsback, it was really important that the thing that made science fiction or scientifiction, which it was <laughs> called, which is disgusting. Don't no, even, I wish that it caught out on Don't I'm even try to it say that. it. It's so gross. Scientification. Scientification. He felt that it need that the science needed to be real and believable. And mm. if you think about who had access to science education in the twenties, mm. it wasn't a lot of women and it was definitely a lot it was definitely not a lot of people of color, irrespective of gender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why our sort of dominant understanding of science fiction has historically been um, like largely produced by white men. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's not that women of color, it's not that people of color and women in general haven't been writing it. It's that the genre sort of became um, structured around these like, Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is why material history is so interesting, right? Because like, oh, actually, these people made decisions that produced real consequences. Yeah, yeah. And also made decisions about like, when you pair the history of science fiction publishing with the history of um, the sort of 
disciplinary evolution of science. Yeah, so that's sort of that historical moment around the emergence of science as something that, again, could only be practiced by white men mm-hmm. that, you know, is, is tied in in all kinds of ways with, like, imperialist notions of knowledge production mm-hmm. and that thus disavow structurally knowledges that we could absolutely consider to be scientific, but mm-hmm. that emerged from spaces outside of the imperial center. Totally. So, like... There's all kinds of, I mean, that's why like indigenous futurism and Afrofuturism are so exciting because they, like they offer for like, how do I want to put this? Like for me as a, as a reader who grew up reading like Robert Heinlein and Mm -hmm. like white men's science fiction, I find genres exciting that like actually offer me a view of a different world rather Mm -hmm. than an extrapolation of the world that I was already told was the way things are. Yes, totally. Yeah. Totally. And and whenever people get twitchy about what constitutes science, like what constitutes the science in science fiction, it I really want to remind people that there are a lot of things that we used to consider science which mm-hmm. are pseudoscience. And so yeah. like phrenology for example say phrenology it's my favorite example the science of like people's skulls and what that tells you about their personality and type of character they are like that is that has been debunked but it was Mm -hmm. extremely important in like i don't know like the late 19th century yeah eugenics another great example of a of a science that is not real but was extremely important as a scientific practice to racist and imperialist white people yeah so it makes a lot of sense that science fiction sorry scientific fiction would be like a particular sort of like hinge for like like white supremacist ideals and imperialism and how it's getting worked out and gender Mm -hmm. politics and how they're getting worked out like all of that sort of centers around both around sort of science as it's emerging in like the late 19th early 20th centuries and then also like always around publishing Mm -hmm. right which is like again why material history is so fascinating because you can really in concrete ways understand something about um, how knowledge is how knowledge is created and how the possibilities of knowledge are like foreclosed, mm-hmm. which is also part of Hermione's journey in the Harry Potter books. Truly, her journey into becoming a person concerned with material culture and the yeah. origins of texts. Exactly, that's a great transition. Let's go. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. As a visitor from Amiskwatsi, Waskahigan, Edmonton, Treaty 6, and Métis Territory, I want to begin by echoing the recognition that Concordia University is located on unceded Indigenous lands. I recognize the Ganyankehaga Nation as the custodians of the lands and waters on which we gather today. It is a great honor and privilege to be back in Jiljage, Montreal. Thank you so much to the ABQLA Programming Committee, and especially Catherine Hans for reading so many of my emails, uh, for inviting me to give today's closing keynote. It is a pleasure to be here. 
The significance of being invited to give a keynote while still a PhD student is not lost on me. Moreover, to be invited to give a keynote because of my podcast on Harry Potter <laughs> feels to me to be a momentous thing indeed. With this talk, I'm going to bridge two more or less distinct areas of my work, my Harry Potter scholarship, if you will, and my research into early Canadian women's science fiction and fantasy writing. I want to do this by thinking through the ways in which Hermione Granger models reading. Hermione is, of course, the true hero of J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter novels. The brightest witch of her age, her careful study and keen intellect blazes the path for Harry to find and defeat the Dark Lord. Throughout the series, Hermione's journey takes her from a devout, pious reader dedicated to the authority of the written word to an inspirationally critical reader. This shift comes quite suddenly, as I see it, in the fourth book, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Here, Hermione learns that Hogwarts is home to about a hundred house elves, and she is aghast. The fact that Hermione doesn't know about house elves at Hogwarts is huge because Hermione knows everything about Hogwarts. And why doesn't she know? Because house elves aren't included in the book Hogwarts, A History. Over the previous three novels, Hermione has drawn on Hogwarts, A History constantly. Her deep familiarity with its thousand-plus pages makes her as expert as the school staff and, in some cases, even more so than the Weasley twins. We can attribute her ignorance to things of things like the Chamber of Secrets, the tunnels into Hogsmeade, and the reason the Whomping Willow was planted in the first place to the fact that these were non-institutional changes to the school. But house elves are the lifeblood of a well-run Hogwarts. To exclude them from the official record of the school is not only a glaring omission. For Hermione, it is a tremendous betrayal of trust. We know this because the next time she refers to Hogwarts A History, she says, quote, Of course, that book's not entirely reliable. A revised history of Hogwarts would be a more accurate title. Or a highly biased selective history of Hogwarts, which glosses over the nastier aspects of the school, end quote. Of course, Hermione doesn't stop reading Hogwarts A History. She just stops taking its authority for granted. This, I think, is key. Hermione's response to a highly biased and selective history book isn't to forget about it, or ban it, or burn it, but to read it differently, to read it with the knowledge that it is implicitly biased. In other words, Hermione learns how to read symptomatically. Symptomatic reading is something we do all the time without necessarily knowing the term for it. It's more or less just reading things while keeping their social and historical context in mind. The term comes from the French theorist Louis Althusser, who proposed to read Karl Marx's philosophy symptomatically in order to understand its underlying ideologies. I won't pretend to be thoroughly versed in Marxist literary criticism because I'm not Hermione, but I find this Oxford definition to be quite useful. A mode of reading literary and historical works which focuses on the text's underlying presuppositions in particular, it tries to determine what a particular text is unable to say or represses because of its ideological conviction. So when Hermione describes Hogwarts a history as a highly biased and selective history of Hogwarts, which glosses over the nastier aspects of the school, 
she is coming to realize that books aren't just informative. They are tools that reproduce the systems of power that organize our society. As one might expect, after coming to terms with Hogwarts' history, Hermione goes on to model a brilliant and kaleidoscopic ability to conduct symptomatic readings. This experience radically transforms her relationship to all manner of printed text. In Book 5, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Hermione reads the entirety of the ministry-mandated Defense Against the Dark Arts textbook. She concludes, correctly, that its emphasis on theory without practice is a deliberate attempt to disempower students. Further, she carefully analyzes each issue of the Daily Prophet newspaper to stay knowledgeable about the increasing about the increasingly fascist rule of Cornelius Fudge and the slow Death Eater infiltration of the Ministry of Magic. Meanwhile, Harry, a classically terrible reader, gives up on the prophet because it doesn't tell him what he wants to hear, and as a result, he misses the newspaper's strategic invocation of his own name to turn, opi- to turn public opinion against him. Harry. <laughs> Now, you might rightly ask about Hermione's refusal to deviate from the instructions in her potions textbook in Book 6, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And this is a fair counterpoint, because at this point, she should know that textbooks aren't necessarily reliable. But at the same time, she is able to see the latent violence in the mysterious Half-Blood Prince's marginalia in Harry's potions textbook. We as readers instinctively side with Harry, whose devotion to the prince's marginalia has enabled him to outshine Hermione in potions class. That is, until Harry nearly murders Draco in the bathroom by using a spell from the margins labeled for enemies. A critical reader might have asked, what kind of high schooler has enemies? But Harry can't read critically, and so he assumes the spell is a relatively harmless hex or jinx and not a murder spell. Hermione would never have made this mistake. This is pure speculation, but I imagine that if Hermione had gotten the Prince's Potions textbook instead of Harry, she would have tested every one of the annotated recommendations and then written a strongly worded letter to the publisher to explain the many improvements their 30-year-old textbook requires, and no one would have been almost murdered in the bathroom. The last example I'll give here, though I'm happy to talk about more of her drinks later, is Hermione's willingness to read Rita Skeeter's trashy, unauthorized post-mortem biography, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. I think this example is splendid. Even though the genre of the book is easy to dismiss as tawdry, sensational gossip, Hermione reads it anyway. She knows that knowledge of Dumbledore's story is mostly gaps, and so for her, the biography isn't so much a fact sheet as it is an archive, rich with letters and anecdotes, that might enable her and her friends to piece together what Voldemort is after. She certainly doesn't accept it at face value as a tell-all in the way that the book is marketed and poor Harry is manipulated into believing, but rather approaches it as a reflection of their current political and social moment. So we have to remember that as far as anyone knew at this time, Dumbledore was the victim of a political assassination. He was the main antagonist of fascism in the wizarding world, and his death marks a tipping point in the balance of power between mainstream ministry democracy and Death Eater fascism. 
Hermione knows Rita Skeeter to be a prolific and controversial writer with a keen sense of the zeitgeist. She knows there's no way Skeeter would have written a book that could endanger her life or her career, and so Hermione must recognize the book as intentionally non-threatening to the fascist political regime vying for power. Of course, this isn't to say that Skeeter would have written a less sensational book um, had, she, had it been a different time, and probably not based on the way that she wrote about Harry and the Goblet of Fire. But we don't need to speculate when taking into account the specific conditions that produce the book while also interpreting its contents. For Hermione, the book isn't proof that Dumbledore lied to or manipulated Harry. It is merely a book meant to discredit an anti-fascist that was published in an increasingly fascist time. As a critical reader, Hermione is unhindered by either devotion to or distrust of specific authors, genres, or even literary forms. Does she retain prejudices with respect to those things? Undeniably. But she shows us the value of reading across genre, form, and even authorial reliability in order to have as much information as possible. The Hermione Granger who sits in the snow reading The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore is my favorite example of archival praxis. It is completely and, uh, and utterly unsurprising to me that all of the time and care she puts into her Dumbledore research ultimately hinges on a tiny incidental mark she just happens to notice and a picture of a young man whom Harry thinks maybe he's seen before. This, at least in my experience, is archival research to a T. Not having a clue what you're looking for, but looking anyway because you know there has to be something. Not knowing what to, not knowing what to ask about or whom. Taking random chances, defying death, fighting giant snakes. Why they have giant snakes in Library and Archives Canada, I will never know. When I started my PhD in 2012, I wanted to compare contemporary Canadian women's science fiction to proto-science fiction written by Canadian women around the early 20th century. I wanted to see what these texts could tell us about the development of Canadian feminism over the last hundred or so years. Only it turned out I couldn't do this project because no one, not a single person, had published anything about early 20th century science fiction written by Canadian women. What if there wasn't any? I had just assumed that there would be, but suddenly I realized how foolish that was. I had never heard of any early Canadian women's science fiction. I had never read any early Canadian women's science fiction. And come to think of it, neither science fiction nor fantasy showed up in any of the canlit anthologies I've used during my undergraduate and master's degrees. Maybe Canadians didn't write science fiction until the 1980s. Maybe Margaret Atwood invented Canadian science fiction. <laughs> Impossible. It seemed to me to be impossible that this was the case. But, like Hermione, I had nothing to go on other than my sense that there must be more to the story. And so I did what Hermione would do. I went to the library. Actually, I went to several libraries. Library and Archives Canada with the snakes. The Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, uh, Speculation, and Fantasy at the Toronto Public Library and the Bob Gibson Collection of Speculative Literatures at the University of Calgary. My first trips were a bust because I didn't know what I didn't know, and it led me to a number of false starts. But I made the best of it, 
Gradually, I came to learn that Canadian women did write science fictional literatures as early as 1896 and all the way through the early and mid-20th century. But the vast majority of these works were published in American magazines. Five years of archival research later, I have unraveled what feels like an elaborate conspiracy theory about the absence of science fiction from what we call Canlet. <laughs> it's not that science fiction, even in its nascent form, was uninteresting to Canadian women writers. The issue is that most genres, as we know them today, were developed and refined over decades in pulp magazines. But pulp magazines posed a moral and political threat to Canada's class hierarchy and were forcibly eliminated from the Canadian cultural landscape. This is where the conspiracy comes in. For the next 20 or so minutes, I'll walk you through my research, which looks a little bit like this and then bring it back to Hermione's journey and how this juxtaposition helps me to understand my own work. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. If ever there was an audience that didn't need convincing about books causing a moral panic, it's librarians. I imagine most of you are probably familiar with the anxiety that, comics book, that comic books caused, among guardians of children's moral development back in the 1930s and 40s. What you may not know is that Canadian pulp magazines experienced an almost parallel fate and, as a result, forestalled the incorporation of popular genres like science fiction and fantasy into what we call can-lit until well into the 1990s. Before mass-market paperbacks, the pulps were low-cost and cheap-quality fiction magazines printed on pulpwood paper from which they got their name. They had few advertisements and brightly colored sensational covers. They were extremely affordable and very popular. Unlike more recent moral panics about children's books, Harry Potter promoting witchcraft, for example, the panic that both comics and pulp magazines induced in Canada was deeply interconnected with cheapness. That is, early 20th century moral guardians saw clear associations between cheapness and immorality. It's true that the depictions of violence in comics and pulps caused an uproar amongst parents, teachers, librarians, and religious figures, but this focus obscures the broader campaign against cheap reading materials that was motivated by an elite condemnation for lowbrow reading. And, I believe, a concurrent anxiety about social and cultural power. If we follow the genealogy of cheap reading materials from comic books and pulp magazines back in time to dime novels, uh, penny dreadfuls, and even 19th century story papers, we find a parallel genealogy of elite disapproval over the kinds of things working class people like to read. Essentially, rich people have been worried about poor people's reading habits since the emergence of the printing press. 
working class literacy in particular poses a threat to the cultural and economic systems dependent on proletarian complacency because a literate proletariat is able to write, consume, and circulate seditious texts. In the 1930s and 40s, the Canadian state sought to define itself as a strong, unified nation, not only independent from Britain, but in opposition to the growing influence of communism as well. Catherine Err defines the 1930s America communism binary as, quote, one of the most powerful ideological oppositions of the 20th century, end quote. So much so that the terms have become mutually constitutive. The Canadian government's maneuvers to control pulp magazine distribution in Canada during this period can and should be understood in relation to the state's contemporaneous anxiety over a possible working-class revolution. This is not to say that pulp fiction necessarily aligned with revolutionary politics. Generally speaking, the American pulp magazine industry actually reinforced class hierarchies. Michelle Smith explains that it was commonplace for American magazine owners to subsidize the production of their middle-class and elite magazines with the profit margins from pulp magazine sales. In this way, Smith argues, pulp magazines, quote, could be exploited as a base commodity that funded high culture, much in the same way that the mass labor of typical pulp readers supported the power and elitism of the upper classes, end quote. An excellent example is the American hard-boiled detective pulp, Black Mask, whose sale after a mere eight published issues, eight issues, allowed its owners to subsidize the production costs of their elite magazine, The Smart Set. Now, this was not the business model for Canada's pulp magazine industry. Canadian pulp magazines were produced entirely independent from the existing magazine trade, and, as a result, provided no financial benefit to middle-class and elite cultural producers. Until the 1940s, there wasn't much of a Canadian pulp magazine industry to speak of. The American pulps were well-circulated throughout Canadian cities, with Canadian readers making up about 10% of American pulp sales, which is around 1 million issues per week in the 1920s and 30s, according to Smith. This wasn't a market that Canadian magazine producers were willing to tap. Then, on December 6, 1940, the Canadian government passed the War Exchange Conservation Act, a trade embargo on consumer goods produced outside of what was known as the Sterling Area, which, were, which was made up of countries that either used or pegged their currency to the pound sterling. The embargo included things like chocolate, playing cards, and pulp magazines. The pulps were widely known to be the primary reading material of the working class, and scholars like Michelle Smith, Carolyn Strange, and Tina Liu all point to the classist nature of the embargo, given that middle and elite class magazines, uh, those were called slicks, would continue to be imported. In fact, the phrasing of the War Exchange Conservation Act gave the Minister of National Revenue discretion over which items were desirable and may therefore be afforded a permit to enter Canada and which ones could not. In banning pulp magazines, but not slicks, the Act capitalized on what Smith calls, quote, the inferior class status of the pulps, combined with the belief that the pulps promoted moral degeneration, end quote. 
This allowed the rationale for the pulp embargo to be both moral and economic. Rich people can keep spending money on American magazines, but poor people can't because cheap magazines are bad. In practical terms, Smith explains, the War Exchange Conservation Act enabled the federal government to control, quote, the reading matter of Canadian citizens who possess the least degree of economic and social power, end quote. In a surprise turn of events, the act precipitated a surge of Canadian pulp magazine production. As I mentioned earlier, this new pulp industry operated radically different from its American counterpart. It wasn't Canada's established magazine industry that took advantage of the void in the periodical market. It was a handful of upstarts and opportunistic newspaper expats who came out of the woodwork to capitalize on the massive demand for pulp magazines. They set up small-scale publishing operations and produced scores of low-brow periodicals completely independent of the Canadian magazine trade, and they were tremendously successful. Michelle Smith writes of one example, Alec Valentine's Alval Publishing Company, which grew to have numerous subsidiaries, and explains that between 1941 and 45, quote, Valentine's Publishing House sustained itself with the monthly production of 15 top-selling true crime magazines and four crime fiction magazines. Further, at the publishing house's peak in 1943 to 45, Valentine was publishing up to 44 different titles on a monthly basis, end quote. At their core, these Canadian pulp magazines served as a de facto threat to the dominance of elite cultural production. It's important to remember that during the 1940s, Canadian cultural sovereignty and national sovereignty were increasingly seen as the same thing, and so a threat to one was necessarily interpreted as a threat to the other. The success of this rogue cultural industry meant that, irrespective of the ideological content of the pulp magazines themselves, an independent pulp publishing industry proved the possibility of an alternative to Canada's class hierarchy. But what if Canada's pulp publishers were actually just communists? <laughs> the details get a bit murky, but there is reason to believe that at least some of the big players in the Canadian pulps were socialists or communists. As I already mentioned, the American pulp industry was owned by mainstream magazine producers and wasn't in and of itself a revolutionary medium. But during the 1930s and 40s, there was a major ideological divide in the American science fiction community, and this produced two major fan associations. The Science Fiction League, which was stridently non-revolutionary, and its spin-off association, the Futurians, who <laughs> saw science fiction as an opportunity to imagine new worlds and new social orders, which is kind of the thing that we understand science fiction to do. So the Futurians were largely commies and Trotskyists, and their works were published regularly in Canada's main science fiction pulp, Uncanny Tales. Uncanny Tales was the only Canadian science fiction pulp magazine to last for a significant stretch of time. It was edited by a man named Melvin Colby and published by Adam Publishing, which was a subsidiary of the Alval Publishing Company. According to an anecdote, by noted anti-communist Sam Moskowitz, a writer and literary agent who headed the New York branch of the Science Fiction League, so the non-revolutionary one. 
Melvin Colby was a strong leftist who conspired with the Futurians to keep anti-revolutionary science fiction out of circulation. Over a period of several months, Moskowitz had sent Colby about 100,000 words of original manuscripts to publish in Uncanny Tales, none of which Colby paid for, nor published, nor returned. Moskowitz concludes the story by describing an encounter with another one of the Futurians, John B. Michel, who said to him, and I quote, don't you know what we pulled on you, end quote. And he explained that the Futurians had supplied Colby with the stories that he needed for free, provided he dropped Moskowitz, whose politics Colby didn't like anyway. According to Moskowitz, Michelle departed almost bent over with laughter. Reading symptomatically, here's what I take from the story. The editor of Canada's major science fiction pulp magazine was a strong leftist who filled the magazine's pages with reprints of works by known socialists and communists in the American science fiction field and, strategically withheld from publication, works of science fiction that were ideologically non-revolutionary. And that magazine was owned by Alec Ballantyne, one of Canada's most prolific pulp publishers. On its own, the story doesn't prove that Canada's pulp industry was a hothouse for proletarian politics. But when we consider it in light of the industry's independence from established Canadian culture enterprises, the theory becomes a bit more persuasive. And, of course, there's the federal government's strategic framing of the pulp industry as un-Canadian that we have to take into account. The War Exchange Conservation Act was nullified by the end of World War II, and soon, American pulps returned to Canada's newsstands. Although this was devastating to a handful of publishers, and it spelled the end of magazines like Uncanny Tales, there were some pulp publishers whose success lasted through the 1940s. The Alval Publishing Company continued to produce pulp magazines in a variety of genres, as well as publishing comics and, eventually, salacious pulp paperbacks, until the early 1950s. Superior Publishing, the longest-running Canadian producer of pulps, survived until 1956. So eventually, the Canadian... Ooh, hi, sweetie. <laughs> That's my baby. Eventually, the government's interest in controlling lowbrow reading material ceased to be framed in terms of cross-border economics and started to be a matter of overt cultural integrity. By the end of the 1940s, Canada's elite responded to the ongoing production of pulp magazines with much paranoia about the alien American influence and the insidious threat these magazines posed to the moral development of Canada's children. Crime genres, in particular, raised the specter of pulp magazines as a kind of immoral American mass culture boogeyman, seducing readers into a depravity that was decidedly un-Canadian. It's crucial to know that Canadian pulp magazines were saturated with nationalist rhetoric. Michelle Smith explains that even though these magazines copied the form of the previously embargoed American periodicals, they did so while affecting a nationalist identity to set themselves apart from their American predecessors. Valentine's Pulps, for example, used wartime rhetoric to make leisure reading a way of patriotically supporting the Canadian economy. Blurbs and ads stated, 
Each issue is packed with the best stories that Canada's authors can produce. Get your copy today. And edited and printed in Canada by trade union workmen on Canadian paper. Superior publications, too, would emphasize nationalist pride and promise original Canadian content. For example, the back cover of the second issue of Science Fiction, a short-lived publication, it lasted three issues, uh, devoted entirely to reprints of American SF, states, This magazine is an all-Canadian product, printed and published in Canada and distributed by a Canadian distributing firm. By the purchase of this periodical, you are giving Canadians employment, Canadians who are paying taxes, buying war saving certificates and victory bonds, doing their bit to preserve a free Canada and to maintain our prosperity. Further down the page, the promise is reiterated. Ours are truly all Canadian magazines conceived, edited, and written in Canada by Canadians adding to our country's business. The magazine was entirely made up of American reprints. Entirely. So channeling my inner Hermione, I think we can look beyond the contents and consider how this nationalist rhetoric might have appealed or been intended to appeal to a working class audience. The magazine seemed to go out of their way to identify with the working class, positioning those readers as front lines, producers and consumers of Canadian culture, irrespective of the heavy reliance on American content. Carolyn Strange and Tina Liu have further argued that Canadian stories published in crime pulps consistently promoted conservative Canadian nationalist values. Speaking to the moralism of Canadian true crime magazines, they argue, and I quote, a detailed analysis of these crime narratives illustrates how Canadian pulps persistently conveyed the moral that sinfulness leads to earthly punishment, Every crime sprang from pride, envy, anger, greed, or lust. True crime stories were narrated with edgy dialogue and gumshoe argot, but they remained within and helped define the boundaries of heterosexuality, the racist tropes of moral hierarchies, and the certitude of explicable crime. End quote. So we can see how Canadian pulp magazines had the potential to contribute to the material and textual production of dominant 1940s and 50s Canadian culture, especially among the working class readers whose options for affordable entertainment were most limited. But the cultural and political elite were allergic to any interpretation of the pulps as Canadian cultural production. Michelle Smith contends that because of its physical characteristics, quote, pulp magazines, oh, excuse me, pulp production generated a dynamic in which Canadian nationalism embedded as content within a form of American-style mass culture drew out fears about the Americanization of Canadian society. This meant that editorial strategies to replicate the American pulp magazine style in order to capture its Canadian market could be interpreted as, and I quote, American culture being replicated within the boundaries of the Canadian nation in a manner that eroded distinctions between American and Canadian literary culture, end quote. Now, in retrospect, we can argue that American pulp magazines developed their distinctive style over decades, whereas Canadian pulps had no comparable history or opportunity for development. But the federal government had many allies in its war on pulps. 
religious organizations, voluntary associations like Kiwanis Clubs, and public institutions like schools, libraries, and parent-teacher associations had been lobbying Parliament to make lowbrow reading not literacy, but what people read, a matter of public concern. The argument these groups used was of the think-of-the-children type, decrying the representations of crime and violence in cheap reading materials. Responding to these calls for action, Davy Fulton, Member of Parliament for Kamloops, B.C., introduced a private member's bill to the House of Commons to amend the criminal code to categorize as obscene the depiction of crimes in pulp magazines and comics. According to Fulton, quote, This bill is designed to amend the criminal code to cover magazines and periodicals commonly called crime comics, the publication of which is at present time legal, but which it is widely felt tend to the lowering of morals and to inducing the commission of crimes by juveniles. Fulton's bill, I argue, provided for the members of Parliament and cultural producers invested in maintaining Canada's class stratification an opportunity to get rid of the pulps altogether. When reintroducing his amendment to Parliament after the 1949 federal election, Fulton clarifies that its target, quote, is not the ordinary comic strip in the paper, but rather what is commonly called the crime comic. In other words, the pulp paper magazine which retails for about 10 cents, vast numbers of which can be found on any of our newsstands, end quote. Now, Fulton's definition of crime comic seems to be more a definition of pulp magazines in general than of comic books specifically. This was entirely in keeping with the total lack of discernment that members of Parliament had for pulp periodicals. The House of Commons debates over Fulton's amendment, which would ultimately lead to the criminalization of both comics and pulp magazines in Canada, were initially framed around concern over young people's exposure to pictorial depictions of violence. However, transcripts of these debates showed the discussion devolving quickly into hand-wringing over lowbrow reading culture in general, with only a surface interest in the circulation of comics. For example, Ernest George Hansel, member from McLeod, who positions himself as something of an expert on unwholesome literature, having compiled, and I quote, quite a file of this material over the past few years, end quote, conflates crime comics and what we might call tabloids in his remarks about the need for the amendment. He begins by describing a crime comic called Crime Does Not Pay, but then quickly moves on to another periodical called Girls on City Streets. At this point, he reminds the House that he has been building a file, and then describes reading, quote, an article on the life of a prostitute, end quote. Now, I assume this article was printed in the publication Girls on City Streets, but this isn't quite clear from, from the transcript, so there could be another periodical in question. Then... Reminding the House of his file yet again, Hansel states, I did not obtain this material, or sorry, I did not obtain this merely to read. Of course, I had to read it, Mr. Speaker, or I would not have had the evidence. End quote. Neither Girls on City Streets nor the article Hansel claims he read for research are characterized as comics or even having pictures. 
suggesting to me that the purported anxiety over pictorial depictions of violence is in fact a campaign against the pulp magazine industry as a whole. In fact, so loose is the definition of crime comics during these debates that one member, Angus McInnes, abandons pretext altogether, stating, quote, I have received a number of letters and resolutions from organizations in my province urging that I support some measure, though not necessarily this one, to restrict restrict the circulation of crime comics or whatever we choose to call the sort of literature under discussion, end quote. The language used by members of parliament throughout these debates relies heavily on concern over children's reading practices, and this is supposed to justify the scope of the amendment. Further, members of parliament concur that it is not merely enough to censor bad reading materials, that action must be taken to encourage the right kind of reading. Roy Knight, for example, implores, quote, I suggest that instead of censorship or court action, we institute a counterattack by substituting things that are good for things that are evil. Let there be a cultivation of taste for good literature while people are still young. Let us give our young people better literature, end quote. Angus McInnes, too, laments, quote, the amount of trash offered for sale and the very small amount of literature that is worthwhile, end quote. Keeping in mind that these debates occurred while the Royal Commission on National Development in the Arts, Letters, and Sciences, which is more commonly known as the Massey Commission, undertook to inventory cultural production in Canada, it is clear that this was a period of cleaning house, culturally speaking. Crime comics and the alleged threat they posed to children provided members of the Canadian government who were concerned with refining culture an opportunity to get rid of the entire tawdry pulp industry. It is thus no coincidence that during the debate on Fulton's proposed amendment to the criminal code, an amendment that records show is only superficially about comics, members of parliament take the opportunity to expound on Canada's need for a better literature and, indeed, a Canadian literature to define and unify the nation. Between 1949 and 51, the Massey Commission brought the matter of Canadian cultural production into public conversation. And, following its report in 1951, came a variety of government-sponsored institutions and funding bodies to support cultural production. But only high culture. According to Maria Tippett, a great deal of cultural production in Canada had been Americanized after World War I, including music, theater, and writing. That is, like Canada's pulp magazine industry, high culture was greatly influenced by American cultural industries. With concentrated government support, however, most notably the Canada Council for the Arts, which was established in 1957, these American-influenced arts could be Canadianized and eventually make Canada an an internationally acclaimed producer of arts and culture. But there were no efforts to secure the viability of Canada's pulp magazines or comic books or mass-market fiction published in paperback form. Fulton's bill had not only successfully marginalized pulp magazines and comics as American culture, undeserving of Canadian governmental support, it also ostracized that particular iteration of American culture as immoral and, therefore, criminal. 
Interestingly, Fulton would testify as to the inefficacy of Canada's anti-pulp legislation before the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency in the spring of 1954. According to Amy Nyberg's analysis of the hearings, quote, The law to ban the sale of crime and horror comics had proven ineffective in Canada. After it passed, that type of comic was replaced by what Fulton termed <coughs> salacious material, and within the year, the crime and horror comics were back on the stands as well. Canadian law enforcement officials proved reluctant to prosecute retailers and distributors under the law, and the publishers were American and therefore not subject to Canadian law. Thus, the outcome of Fulton's bill was not the elimination of crime comics and pulps from Canada, but only the elimination of Canada's pulp magazine and comics industries. The mass culture circulating in Canada therefore remained dominated by American producers, ultimately proving correct the elite characterization of mass culture as American. The eradication of pulp magazine production from the Canadian cultural landscape had the added effect of marginalizing genre fiction wholesale as part of an American and therefore insurmountably un-Canadian tradition. And ultimately, this disqualified working class and young readers who were, who were fans of mass culture from participating in Canadian culture. By framing mass culture as un-Canadian, Canada's political and cultural elite tied specific forms of cultural production to national loyalty. In David Ketterer's words, quote, realism and naturalism were tools of nationalism. To describe the Canadian reality was, supposedly, to create the Canadian reality, end quote. This attitude produced a self-perpetuating literary tradition in which Canadian writers were obliged to publish their non-realist writing in American and some British venues. Canadian author, science, excuse me, Canadian author Phyllis Gottlieb, for example, is quoted by Ketterer as believing her science fiction career to be, quote, somehow un-Canadian, maybe even treasonable. End quote. I wish I could say that reading the Harry Potter series made me a better researcher, but that's not entirely true. The analysis, this analysis, of how Hermione models a critical and symptomatic reading only occurred to me when I started brainstorming for this keynote. But it has revolutionized how I understand my own research and method as reading symptomatically. Archival research, I have come to learn, requires a willingness to read everything without hierarchizing those texts based on genre. To understand the history of Canadian women's science fiction writing, I consulted pulp magazines, slick magazines, fan-driven online databases, blogs, bibliographies and indexes, every book on American women's SF I could find, comic book dealers, used book dealers, collectors, scholars, government documents, and even a few academic journals and scholarly monographs. Any consultation I did with Canadian literary histories required me to read symptomatically in order to get a sense of the ideologies motivating the so-called understanding of Canadian culture. I already suspected that the history of English-Canadian literature was an elitist one, and the fact that the majority of my research took place outside of Canlet's official narrative channels validated that suspicion. Archival research also requires an ambivalence about what we find. I was so excited about the science fiction stories that I found written by Canadian women. I was excited to read their nascent feminisms and imagined better worlds. I was excited to argue in my dissertation that their exclusion from Can Lit was classist and misogynist, which it is, 
but I began this project with a great deal of naivete. As I read the stories, I realized that my project wouldn't be a celebratory recovery of lost Canadian women's science fiction. The texts are racist, and they advocate both explicitly and implicitly for a white, racially pure Canada, in precisely the same way as did the eugenic feminism of our famous five. The project thus became about the ways early Canadian feminists deployed science fiction as a discourse of white supremacy. It's a more valuable project than the one I'd envisioned, but a more complicated one, and that's okay. Hermione's research into the martyred Albus Dumbledore, revealing him to have been a young fascist, reminds me that it's okay if what we uncover makes us interrogate our own beliefs. Understanding the history of white feminism is something that we need in Canada, where so many of us deny our own racism. These early Canadian women's science fiction texts help me recognize white women's historical and current investments in white supremacy. Acknowledging Pulp's classist erasure is a key piece of the puzzle, too. The answer isn't to leave the magazines in the archive, but to read them differently. To read them to understand the structures of power that organize our society through culture. And then we can do better. Thank you, and may the fourth be with you. So, Hannah, what did you think about my keynote? Oh, so smart. So good. You're thank so smart you. and good. Oh, thank you. Uh, do we have uh, any, any closing business or are we? I mean, we're just, we're just off, of any. which please off the rails, you know? Yeah, which please, which please completely off the rails. Ooh, um, you know what we can do? What? We can, we can give the people something exciting to look forward to, which is uh, an upcoming episode, which will come out sometime in the next couple months. Mm-hmm. Uh featuring everyone's favorite guy with a film degree so excited so excited i'm going to edmonton for a week in august and uh and we're gonna record at least one and possibly two episodes with neil um and i'm really i'm really tickled i mean i'm obviously tickled to see you Eh. duh you're gonna see me in 12 hours not 12 18 yeah 18 (laughs) Yeah, I'm really, I'm really thrilled. We're uh, so we are going to <laughs> recognizing that the schedule for season three, since it is <laughs> which plays gone rogue, it's going to be mm, irregular. Uh-huh. Uh, it's good, you know what? Episodes are going to come out when they come out. Yep. And bless those of you who have stuck with us. Mm-hmm. I also want to say a huge thank you to everybody who has. Um, donated through the uh the link that we set up on the website Mm -hmm. um you know at some point i will uh defy marcel's orders and actually (gasps) shout out the people who who have donated so far so if you desperately miss (laughs) the twitter (laughs) lists and uh and have always dreamed of having your name pronounced poorly on which please <laughs> go ahead head over to the website ohwhichplease.ca um and click on the link that says gringotts you know what you don't even Amazing. need to click on a link it just says gringotts in the sidebar and then it says amount and you can you can donate a dobby amount which is five dollars canadian or a Ginny weasley amount which is ten dollars canadian or a Hermione Granger amount, which is $20 Canadian, or 
you know, the the proudest feminist statement. You can donate a Hedwig amount, which is $50 Canadian. Yeah, that's right. I created a hierarchy of feminism and equated it with monetary value. I'm the worst. <laughs> oh, my God. This is the, the radical and aggressive feminist agenda at work right here. Yep, absolutely. Uh, don't forget that if you ever want to buy any Witch Please merch, you can do that at society Six dot com slash oh witch please and um you can look forward to seeing some new items in (laughs) that store at some point this season um both because i am designing a thing and also because i have somehow convinced my friend who is better at graphic design than me (laughs) to turn my ideas into things that don't look shitty so look forward to that listen your things Um, don't look shitty they look beautiful. They're beautiful. And my I am definitely going to complete and post my uh, my sound effect <gasps> collage, <gasps> which is very beautiful. Um, but uh, you can also look forward to a Malkoy <gasps> uh, design some point in the future um, and hopefully to a no tall men, <laughs> despite the fact that my friend who is doing the graphic design is a very tall man. <laughs> was like can you explain this joke to me and i was like "Mm, maybe (laughs) hashtag not all not tall not all tall not (laughs) all tall tall men men. (laughs) (laughs) yep you know what what if 100 people donate jesus fucking christ what are you about to sign us up for i will read the names (gasps) of you uh... monsters giving us money Oh my god. Oh my god. If a hundred that's it. Mm-hmm. If a hundred people donate, yeah. Marcel will read your names. Let me just Like as see. painfully as I can possibly manage to do it because She'll you mis- know that I hate it. She'll <laughs> mispronounce your names. We are currently probably somewhere around twenty. Oh my goodness. So yeah, so 99 or fewer, and you get Hannah's beautiful, mellifluous voice doing it, but 100 or more, and I will I will <laughs> suffer. I will suffer through every one. Oh, my God. You can make this happen, folks. It's only $5. <sighs> All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to Season 3, Episode 2 of Witch, Please. Witch. Please? Please? <laughs> never gets old you can find the rest of our episodes uh at that website i already mentioned or which please.ca um special thanks as always to our erstwhile tech support and the robot of our hearts trevor chow fraser hi how are you sorry i'm just gonna do the sound effects now hi how are you doing hi how are you doing (laughs) that's good that sounds like trevor (laughs) No, it doesn't. All right. So we will be back in a unknowable quantity of time to bring you another episode that will be roughly the same amount, if not more, unhinged. (laughs) But until then, later, witches. what
you've always wanted, people. <laughs> this is you asked for this. You said you wanted us unedited. <laughs> this is it. Oh God. Okay, I'm pressing stop. Great. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.